in short, it's a way to rejigger capitalism and turn it into something that is a collaboration between government and big business. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, October 31st. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rob Bluey. We hope you have a happy Halloween. You heard at the top there Michael Walsh. He's the editor of a new book called Against the Great Reset. It was just a few months after the COVID-19 pandemic swept across the world and prompted governments to impose draconian lockdowns that a group of global elites introduced what is known as the Great Reset. Championed by the World Economic Forum and embraced by the likes of President Joe Biden, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and King Charles III, it's now the focus of a book featuring more than a dozen conservative authors. Michael Walsh joins our show to explain what the Great Reset is and how it would radically transform our civilization as we know it. We also read your letters to the editor, plus it's Halloween, and we have a good news story to bring you about an organization that is making sure children across America have their costume dreams come true today. Now stay tuned for today's show after this. Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct, designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. We are joined on the Daily Signal podcast today by Michael Walsh, editor of Against the Great Reset, 18 Theses Contra the New World Order. Michael is a novelist, author, and a longtime contributor to Time, a founding editor at Breitbart, and a good friend. He has taken on this new assignment to bring together a collection of outstanding authors for this new book. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. It's good to talk to you again. Before I ask you specifically about the book, I just want to start at the beginning. Explain to our listeners what The Great Reset is. Okay, The Great Reset uh, is, if you were to believe our friends on the left, a right-wing nut conspiracy theory. So uh, we'll start with that proposition, and then we'll point out that uh, we must have the most effective conspiracy theory in the history of right-wing nut conspiracy theories, because it's actually up on their own website. That, that would be the World Economic Forum, based in Geneva and Davos, Switzerland. And they have used the COVID pandemic panic to beta test their notion for how the world ought to be organized around a kind of oligarchical elite core of international businessmen, celebrities, and uh, political figures. And in short, it's a way to rejigger capitalism and turn it into something, in my opinion, that's as close to Italian fascism as we've seen since the 1930s. That is a collaboration between government and big business to control the population. And in so doing, uh, fight climate change, and I put air quotes around climate change every time I use that word, uh, sustainable energy, green power, 
all of the crackpot ideas that are currently being forced down our throats uh, are derived from notions of the Great Reset. And to, to just finish this brief introduction to them, uh, Klaus Schwab, who is the head of the World Economic Forum, uh, and a colleague of his, Thierry Malare, I believe his name is, wrote a book recently called COVID-19, The Great Reset. So the link between the enforced lockdowns and the abrogations of our First Amendment rights, especially, and COVID and the COVID impositions is very clear in their minds, and they want to do it again. So in short, they gave us a test, and as far as they're concerned, we passed with flying colors. We stopped our freedom of speech. We stopped going to church. We let them close our churches down. They broke up freedom of assembly. All of the things we thought were not only guaranteed to us by the Constitution, but by God, as the framers of the Constitution pointed out, all of our natural rights were gone overnight, and we gave up without a fight. So we're not off to a good start, but we hope that against the Great Reset will be ammunition for all of those of us who want to fight back against this. We, we sure do. And, and the book is fantastic in that regard. Before I ask you about it, I, I do want to get your personal thoughts, though, because I, I sense that you yourself were quite disappointed with, with some institutions or, or Americans who just blindly went along with what they were being told. What were you thinking about during that time of COVID when you saw whether it be churches or governments, um, politicians, business leaders, just adopt these ideas and and shut down society. Uh, in effect, for, for several months in some cases, or, or in some states, it seems like we're still dealing with the repercussions. That's correct. Well, as it happened, I had just uh, gone home to Ireland, uh, where I live a great deal of the year, and we were settling in and glad to be back when the two weeks to uh, slow the spread or flatten the curve, whatever nonsense they were selling, was imposed on us. And I recall sitting in one of our locals there in my little village out on the west coast of Ireland and saying, they will never let us go. This is a complete lie. Now that they've got you doing what they want you to do, they're never going to let you go without a fight. And it took, as you just noted, Rob, two years plus, and in some places it's still going on. I, I see people in masks in the supermarket and to whom I say, hey, a little early for Halloween, isn't it, buddy? Because, you know, we all had to take the, the mask care and abuse for the last two years in this psychotic regime that had been impo imposed upon us. Uh, doctor's offices still have signs up which say masks must be worn. I choose to ignore those signs because the only way you can fight back is to just not do it. And finally, enough people did. This, in a way, is what's called Irish democracy, which is acknowledging the uh, rule and then ignoring all of the actual restrictions. But here we are. I was very disappointed, especially as a Catholic, disappointed in the Catholic Church, which, and again, I'm in Ireland when this is happening. We had 700 years plus of English occupation and a half a millennium of uh, proscriptions against our land ownership, our language, our religion, our family structure, our property, 
all of that had been so abused and abolished by the English, the only thing that was against that was the Catholic Church. And in those days, we had the famous hedgerow priests who would who would come and offer mass behind the bushes, basically, out in the countryside and hope that no one ratted them out because they would be killed. Well, this time, the Catholic Church in Ireland folded like a cheap suit, and I think it lost whatever remaining respect uh, it, it used to have uh, from the people of Ireland. Now, project that across the world. You saw that Canadian pastor being arrested in his own church. Uh, this is something I don't think you ever expected to see, Rob. Certainly I never did. Certainly didn't, uh, Michael, and uh, and that's one of the reasons we're grateful that you're calling more attention to it. Uh, you mentioned Klaus Schwab, the, the World Economic Forum. There are some other high-profile individuals, King Charles, President Biden, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, all were using this language throughout this period of time. So it's certainly something I, I, I find it interesting that you say that they, they um, describe it as a conspiracy theory when they themselves have embraced the language and the ideas behind the Great Reset. Embraced it. They invented it. It's on their website. You can go. You can look it up. Go. I, I encourage everybody listening to go to the World Economic Forum website, look up Great Reset, and you will see multiple videos about it. And the tagline on one of them is, you will own nothing and be happy. That's what they want for you. Oh, you'll eat bugs too. That's kind of a little piquant refinement that they've added. But these people are both malevolent and insane simultaneously, and we must be prepared to fight them. Well, your book helps us prepare for that fight, and uh, it's incredibly important in sending a message to those global elites who are trying to restructure our civilization. Tell us about how you were able to pull together this all-star collection of authors and, and really deep thinkers into uh, in just what I would describe as an incredibly powerful uh, tome that uh, really takes on this idea. Oh, thank you uh, for that compliment, Rob. Uh, it Basically, uh, it helps being 73 years old and having been in the journalism business since 1972. So there's a kind of winnowing effect that's caused either by death or retirement uh, for those of us who've been at it for a long time. But I was lucky enough to know almost every one of the people in the book uh, that we included in the book personally. Uh, those that I didn't, obviously, we knew of each other via reputation or mutual friends. And uh, I, I cast a fairly wide net and I got about a 95% uh, agreeable response rate. A couple guys we couldn't get, much to uh, my chagrin, but if we do another book, which we have planned in the works, I'll certainly ask them as well. But uh, I must say, everybody was absolutely great. Um, I was very tough uh, uh, in terms of what I wanted and the kind of essays I wanted from each person, and they gave it to me without much of a a fight, and we worked over it and worked over it. Because one thing I didn't want to do, Rob, was have it be journalism between hardcovers. I, I started in newspapers. I was at Time Magazine for many years as their chief classical music critic and later on a foreign correspondent during the Cold War. So I spent the years between 1985 and 1991 uh, very often behind either the Berlin Wall or the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union itself. Uh, I wanted something that would last. So all of these essays are written not to be topical, but to be pertinent to now. It's a little bit like the movie business. When you do a movie, you know it's going to be 
at minimum two years before this thing gets produced, if it ever does. So it can't be so au courant that it's old and tired by the time audiences get to it. So I hope that we have a book that's as current as we can possibly make it, given that it was written 18 months ago. And I hope the audience uh, takes it to heart and and employs some of the uh, stratagems and tools of analysis that we've provided. Well, you have, do have an incredible list of authors, including Victor Davis Hanson, Conrad Black, Michael Anton, Roger Kimball, and many others. We'll provide uh, a link to all of them in, uh, in the transcript and uh, show notes for, for this interview. Tell us about some of the arguments, maybe some of your favorite arguments that the authors uh, outline in the book. Well, you know, it's like choosing your favorite child. I mean, after you've spent all this time on it, I would say each essay is unique. So I broke them up into six different categories, uh, the political, the personal, the economic, the the ineffable, which is the three essays that come at the end of the book. Each uh, writer, and they were all male except for our wonderful Janice Fiamengo uh, from Canada, uh, was assigned a topic and basically delivered on that topic. I must say I had a couple of writers that I approached and said, I'd like you to write for this book. And the author said, uh, you can't tell me what to write because I gave them suggested topics. And I said, well, I, I have to because I don't want 18 essays on the same subject. But So we didn't, we didn't use them, unfortunately. But uh, for example, Conrad writes about capitalism and that's twinned with Mike Anton writing about socialism. Uh, Roger Kimball, who's a dear friend and uh, the publisher of my books, The Devil's Pleasure Palace and The Fiery Angel, uh, he wrote about the nation state. Richard Fernandez, who's a contributor to PJ Media when I was there and now contributes to our website called thepipeline.org, uh, wrote about the conflict and relationship between science and religion. James Polos wrote about technology and what the scary future it has in store for us. Salvatore Balbonis, who's an American living in Australia, wrote a wonderful piece about the future of transportation, all under the rubric of under the Great Reset. So every single element we considered is what's the effect that this reset could possibly have on these different aspects of life. I, I bring up the rear with an essay on art and does art flourish under totalitarianism? And I based some of this in part on my own experiences uh, in the Soviet Union with, with Soviet art and tell a few more stories from the good old days. Uh, so it's got something for everybody. Each, each essay is roughly the same length, so we could get into it in depth. And each writer had his say, and everyone, as I said, cooperated wonderfully and signed off on the final product. So uh, it's as good as it gets, as the, as the movie title goes. Well, thank you uh, for your work editing all of them and putting it together in a such a comprehensive and uh, an effective uh, uh, package. I think that readers will find it quite quite effective, and I'm glad to hear that you have other works uh, in mind in the future. Uh, before we get to that, I did want to ask you about uh, one of the authors. Uh, you dedicate the book to Angelo Corvilla, uh, who is obviously a, a well-known uh, thinker who unfortunately uh, passed away. Uh, tell us about his contribution and why it was important uh, to remember his him in this way. 
Well, obviously, uh, when we commissioned it, no one had any idea of what the future would hold. And for Angelo and for the rest of us, it was quite tragic when he died, uh, not long after having uh, turned in his big piece, which is about education. Angelo, Angelo uh, former professor at Boston University, a very well-known, distinguished thinker, translator of, uh, of Machiavelli, uh, and, and among other things, and a, and a dear friend of mine, uh, it delivered a piece on how really, it, it, in a way, it's kind of the central piece of the book because we are in for such a bad future given the current state of education, which is essentially indoctrination now into leftist methodology and thought. Uh, and we dedicated the book to Angelo, I think, by consensus because, you know, he's a fallen comrade, as you and I. Uh, we should tell the listeners, go back to the early days of the Andrew Breitbart big sites. And again, you know, when you have a fallen comrade, you honor his memory and try to carry on the work that he did. So uh, I hope that these essays are all worthy of the, the memory of Angelo. God knows his own essay is quite spectacular. It, it certainly is. And and Michael, you, you mentioned uh, throughout this interview your biography and some of the amazing things that you've been able to do. Of course, you and I worked together when you were leading big journalism with Andrew Breitbart. Did you ever imagine that we would be in the situation we are today with this populist revolution that we see among conservatives? Uh, obviously, the election of Donald Trump and and so much of what I think Breitbart was was championing uh, back uh, years ago, uh, before it really um, it, it, it arrived in the political scene. Uh, tell us about this moment that we're living through right now and based on your life experiences, where do you think we're going in the future? Well, I have a lovely anecdote, if I may, Rob, to talk about that. Right after uh, Trump was elected, I was in the uh, old executive office building next, right across from the West Wing, you know it well. Uh, and we were looking out the window. I was visiting with Sebastian Gorka and Mike Anton, actually. And I looked out the window and there was some dignitaries coming and going uh, at, at, the, at the front door of the White House, and you can see them from this angle. And I turned to both Seb and Mike and said, it's so rewarding to me, this was now 2017, that seven years ago when we launched Big Journalism, and slightly before that when Andrew launched Big Government with the late Mike Flynn and Big Hollywood with John Nulty, I said seven, eight years ago, we were four or five guys with laptops. That was it. And now we have a president of the United States in the White House who in part benefited from the revolution that we led. And this gets to me the point that I really want to make is to all of our listeners, you know, heritage to the foundations, and we all have to cooperate. You know, we will hang separately if we don't hang together. But you have to believe in what you're doing and put your life and your fortune and your sacred honor, certainly your careers, as we all did, on the line in order to stand up for what you believe in. We don't need cowards in our movement, and we don't need to play it safe. Uh, we need everybody to take these tools and use them. Uh, because if you think back, Rob, to the Bolshevik Revolution, the communist revolution in the Soviet Union and Russia they didn't start it. They piggybacked onto somebody else's revolution against the czar. 
And then they moved in, and they could only move in because they had the intellectual infrastructure to do it. Now, Russia was hardly anything like the United States, and it was a dysfunctional economic basket case. So they were able to seize power. But what I say to the young people, or I say to this to people who write in on, on our site, which is, I'll mention its name again, the-pipeline, like oil pipeline, .org, they'll say, yeah, it's all very well for you writers, yap, 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 but what are we going to do? Well, I can't tell you what you're going to do. I can only give you the intellectual framework for you to decide what you're going to do. Us putting out programs and white papers and 20 point, that's the job for politicians. But our job as communicators, Robin, you know this well, and, and so many people that you and I know in common who, who worked at Breitbart have spread out into the larger culture. Our job is to communicate with people, to alert them to the danger and explain to them why it's happening and why it's important to combat it. The details are done at the grassroots level, which is not where we are in this book, obviously. It's on the thinking level, but you need that in order for a successful revolution to happen. We certainly do, and I hope many of our Daily Signal listeners take that to heart and use this as an opportunity to to arm themselves with this information that you, you've put together. And also, uh, to put a plug in for the pipeline, uh, I hope that uh, we'll provide a link in, in the transcript again in the show notes, but uh, thank you for the work that you do there. And I also saw that you have, you're featuring uh, your essay uh, from the book uh, this week. So um, it is uh, very nice uh, for, for readers who want to check it out in advance uh, to go to the pipeline. Pipeline. Again, it's the-pipeline.org. Uh, Michael, uh, let me ask you, um, in, in wrapping up here, there are you know, so many people who have been allies and, and, and champions uh, to push back. And, uh, and one of them is Steve Bannon, who has been in the news recently. I know he's a big supporter of this book and the project that you're working on. What can you tell our listeners about Steve, your relationship with him, and his contributions to this effort? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that question. Steve and I go back quite a bit, as you could, might expect. Uh, and uh, he's public enemy number one to so many people on the left. But St Steve Bannon is the most courageous person I know. Uh, honey badger, as he's sometimes called. Uh, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. He goes after what he wants. He speaks his mind. Uh, and the fact that he's been provisionally at least sentenced to jail for having defied the wishes of the uh, Committee on Public Safety, if I may refer back to the psychotics of the French Revolution, and Madame Defarge herself, Liz Cheney, uh, the fact that he's defied these people so bravely and so openly. He's a real, may I say, as a fellow Irishman, a real Irish type, too stubborn to know when to quit. And, and if we don't have men like Steve out front doing it, then we're in trouble. But we need more of them. And something I've often said, especially in Hollywood, where I've had a very productive screenwriter career. I'm a lifetime member of the Writers Guild of America, which you can't join. They join you once you start selling scripts to 
major studios, people say, how am I going to make it? I can't come out of the closet. I'm afraid I'll lose my job. Well, stop being afraid. No one likes a whiner. Stand up for what you believe in. Take take an example like Steve Bannon or the late Andrew Breitbart or, Bart, or whoever else uh, comes to mind at the moment and follow them and be like them. I think that's the most effective way we can possibly fight back. And I think we hope to deliver a beating to the Democrats. After that, uh, I hope we can take back the White House in 2024. Michael, before I let you go, you had referenced earlier in the conversation, we're talking again today about Against the Great Reset, but you said this is the first uh, of many, maybe other books that will come in a series. Uh, tell us what you have in store for the future. Yes. Well, if this book is successful and we're off to a very good start, and thank you for your help and Heritage for its help, uh, there'll be more books. Now, provisionally, I have thought of calling them against something. And uh, let me really quickly, Rob, I, I mentioned the introduction of the book. The idea of against X is a very, very old, historically uh, honored tradition. You had uh, Demosthenes against Philip II of Macedon. You had Cicero against Mark Antony. And their, their works were called against something. You had Tertullian, early Christian uh, theologian against Martian, against Martian. So we're against the Great Reset. But we're against a lot of other things, too. Uh, and I'm working on, I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be right now, but since we're off to a good start with this book, and your listeners can help us by going out and buying this book, this book is an interesting combination of private financing, which allowed us to pay our writers very, very well, and commercial publishing, led by Adam Bellow, Saul Bellow's son, the great New York editor, who started his own press now called uh, Bombardier Books at Post Hill, Post Hill Press. Uh, if this combination is to work, and that's the way to make it work, to get around some of the uh, proscriptions against conservative thought in the mainstream media, then we need the support of, of your listeners, heritage members, people all over the country. Uh, otherwise, we can't do it. So give us a hand. That's basically all I can tell you about that right now. But there, there will be more, and they will be against some of the things I guarantee you you're against. Well, Michael, thank you again for taking on the leadership role of, of editor and, and assembling an outstanding piece of work here. And to Adam Bellow and everybody else uh, at Post Hill Press, we appreciate their work. They've published my colleague Fred Lucas recently on his book about voter suppression and the myths associated with that. So we are, are grateful to all of you for, for the contributions you're making. And uh, best wishes encourage our Daily Signal listeners uh, to go out and purchase the book and support this effort. Michael Walsh, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Did you know that under Biden, our military is dangerously weak? So weak that we're not ready if China, Russia, or Iran attacks. We explain why and how to fix it in our 2023 Index of U.S. Military Strength, a comprehensive deep dive on the readiness of our nation to face threats and complete its mission in today's world. Learn more at heritage.org slash military. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show. Virginia, who's up first? In response to Fred Lucas's reporting on the 240,000 unverified ballots that were mailed out to voters in Pennsylvania, 
Richard writes, I'm a resident of Pittsburgh. I did not request an absentee ballot, but one showed up in my mailbox about three weeks ago. My wife and I were both surprised and could not figure out why it showed up. It turned out I will be traveling on Election Day, so I went ahead and completed it and mailed it in. Now, after reading your story, I am wondering if my ballot will be counted. I am a registered voter and have voted routinely for at least a decade. I can confirm for your story that I received an absentee ballot without requesting one. Well, Richard, thank you for sharing that story with us. We appreciate that. and We'll be keeping a close eye on these stories as Election Day approaches. In response to Mary Margaret Olihan's piece, UK's National Health Service finds most youths identifying as trans are going through transient phase, we received this letter from Randy Bergeron. Dear Daily Signal, it was the public education institutions that led American children down this path. Public education lost sight of its primary role to educate our children and to not interfere with the parents' right to guide their child's ideological upbringing. Over the past 40 years, there has been a steady increase of education budget increases rewarded with a steady decline in test score results and a huge drop in America's academic standing on the world stage relevant to other nations' test score results. Defund public education and replace it with school choice vouchers, and we'll see a much faster turnaround of this nonsense. Your letter can be featured on next week's show, so send us an email at letters at dailysignal.com. At the Heritage Foundation, we believe that every single policy issue discussed in D.C. tells a story. So we want to tell it well. On the Heritage Explains podcast, co-hosts Tim Desher and Michelle Cordero take one policy issue a week, mix in a creative blend of clips, narration, and hard-hitting interviews to equip you on crucial issues in under 20 minutes. So get your story straight. Subscribe to Heritage Explains wherever you listen to podcasts. Virginia, you have a Halloween-themed good news story to share with us today. Over to you. That's right. Today is Halloween, and for our kids, that means two things, candy and costumes. Today, kids are given permission to let their imaginations run wild as they dress up as pirates, princesses, and superheroes. But purchasing Halloween costumes can be a financial challenge for some families. But there is a group of volunteers who year after year, from August to October, they collect and send kids Halloween costumes who otherwise maybe couldn't afford one. Allie Womack is the chief operations officer and a founding member of Ween Dream. And I recently had a chance to catch up with her and ask her why she and her friend decided to start a nonprofit to make the wishes of children come true at Halloween. So, Allie, how did this start? What launched Ween Dream? So, Ween Dream started um, unofficially uh, shortly after Katrina. Um, the founder, Kelsey Meeks, uh, moved here from Pensacola and noticed that kids were trick-or-treating, um, especially in the Central City neighborhood of New Orleans, without any costumes. And she's like, there's got to be a way that people have things just lying around. So, she started collecting from family and friends. And then realized that there was much more of a need than she had anticipated, that it went well beyond, you know, having survived a hurricane. Um, so then she incorporated in 2014, um, and that's when I came on. So I'm also one of the founding members with her. And we were like, okay, so it's not just happening in New Orleans. It has to be happening other places. So we became a 501c3, then started with. 60 costumes in her um, living room and that first year we gave away 500 and it was like to 12 uh, 12 different states 
that kids had requested costumes. Um, and each year we've just been growing and growing and growing. Um, we've actually reached um, over 18,000 kids in 42 states this year. So um, it's been a pretty cool uh, process to have gone from, from that just a, a few short years ago. Yeah, that is a lot of growth very quickly. And you all are an all-volunteer organization. How exactly does it work in practice? So like you said, we're all volunteer. Um, no one gets paid for any of their efforts. Uh, we have a very small board of five people. Um, one is in New Jersey, one is in Baton Rouge, and three are in New Orleans. Um, and we all work different parts of the organization from finances to actual logistics to shipping to all of that. So basically what happens is uh, families will um, apply for a costume, families or groups. So they're all children in need, and that can be anyone living in the foster care system, in a homeless shelter, um, in poverty, or kids living with a disability or some sort of medical condition or having survived like a natural disaster, like a flood, a hurricane, or a fire. Um, so everyone applies in August. And we get collect all the kids' information. So um, we get a bunch of sizing information, and then they get to pick out two characters. And then first we go to our inventory. We get a lot of new and gently used costume donations. Um, we have a warehouse in Jefferson, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans, uh, where we process all of the costumes. We make sure everything is clean, no holes, rips, tears, anything like that. Um, and then once we get that list from all of our applicants, we match costumes with kids because the last thing we want is for a kid who is, you know, going through anything to get something that doesn't fit, that they don't really want, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't look new. Mm -hmm. um, and then by the middle of October, we've shipped everything off to our kids and then we just wait for pictures. Wow. What are some of the craziest costume requests that you all have fulfilled this year? Um, so this year was actually a pretty, pretty normal year. Um, you know, kids want all of the same things that I remember growing up, like hmm. all of the scary movies from Jason uh, to Michael Myers. Um, you know, princesses are always big. Superheroes are always big. But a couple that stand out to me um, from years past, there was a girl who um, was in a wheelchair. She's a paraplegic. And the first year she applied for a costume, she wanted to be a mermaid. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, that's, that's so fitting for her. Well, her mom wrote us the next year and said that she had to be amputated mm -hmm. um, from both of her legs. And that next year she wanted to be a shark attack, Aww. which I thought was such a, uh, it was like a humbling thing for me because, you know, she's making light out of, out of her situation. And we were so thankful that we could help provide that for her that Halloween. Wow. That's incredible. When, when you work with kids like that and, and any child that's coming to you all asking for help, what is the message that you hope kids receive a lot of people think that halloween is just for kids to walk around the neighborhood and get free candy um but halloween is actually the only holiday that we celebrate that the entire community comes together and it's not just you know specific like mardi gras the entire community comes together in new orleans but halloween is coast to coast so there's that aspect of it but the most important thing about the halloween costumes is that those kids that are living with whatever trials and tribulations that they have in their life, they actually get to wear that costume and use their imagination and play and be outside of their circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, a kid with multiple sclerosis gets to have muscles or a girl who can't afford dance classes gets to dress up as a ballerina or a kid living in a homeless shelter 
gets to dress up as a veterinarian and feel what it's like to to potentially be that someday. So it's it goes well beyond just the trick or treating, and uh, we really hope that that kids will be able to have that imagination and play and just be a kid again. Ween Dream collects costumes year-round, so if you want to get involved in future Halloweens and help support their work, you can visit weendream.org. And we hope that you and your kids, your grandkids, have a safe and fun Halloween tonight, whether you're going out trick-or-treating or just having a peaceful fall night at home. Well, Virginia, after I think three trunk or treats and a few other <laughs> Halloween activities, this is uh, certainly the culmination of a very busy time for parents like myself. Sounds like there's a lot of candy in your house right now, right? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you for listening to the Daily Signals Interview Edition. If you haven't had the chance already, be sure to check out our evening show right here in your podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We'll read all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you at 5 p.m. for our top news edition. Make it a great day or not, the choice is yours. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Samantha Asheris, and Jillian Richards. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.